0: Hi guys, it's Carrington Garland here and welcome to our third episode of L Talks Lifestyle. This episode is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to be the only one hosting it today and the guest that I'm going to have is Frank X. Walker. If you don't know who Frank X. Walker is, he's a native of Danville, Kentucky and he graduated from the University of Kentucky. He also is a professor here and he was Kentucky's 2013 Poet Laureate.
1: I'm Frank X. Walker, professor in the Department of English and African American and Africana Studies.
0: So when did you know you wanted to be a poet slash writer? And was there a personal moment or event that like moved you to put your thoughts on paper? Hmm,
1: A moment. I don't know that there was a moment. Um, I know that as a kid, I was in love with books very early. And I feel like that I'm a writer because of my relationship with books. I don't think there was a single moment that turned me from another direction in the world towards poetry or or writing. I would say it was um, a slow burn and a developing appreciation over many, many, many decades.
0: When did you first start writing poetry? Like, seriously?
1: Seriously? In high school. Uh, I actually have a a special class that focused on creative writing in the ninth grade and much of the work from that class was published in the school journal. I guess it meant I was serious.
0: What is your favorite poetic form to write in and why?
1: Ah, Favorite form? I would say persona because I get to try on the skin of of other people and other things and voices unlike my own. I'm pretty bored with my, my own voice and, and life and experience by now at this age. And I get to, to do a, little, a lot of research, really step into another space that allows me to enjoy history. In most cases, when I write in persona, I'm writing uh, in historical voices like surrounding Megar Evers' life or the individuals connected to the Lewis and Clark expedition or individuals connected to Isaac Murphy and horse racing in Kentucky. And all those are historically significant events and people. I didn't experience them personally, but it allows me to, to step into those spaces.
0: How much research do you put into your persona poems?
1: Uh, as much as it takes to feel like I know all the speakers well enough to impersonate them on the page, to, to render them authentically on the page. Uh, that has been as short as one year period, and as long as a three year period.
0: How do you know when you're like done with the poem? Like, how do you know when like, you know that it's ready to be put out there and shared with the world?
1: (laughs) Uh, If it passes my revision checklist, I have a checklist that has at least 44 questions I can ask about the poem. And if it passes the entire checklist, which includes reading it in public to an audience and gauging their reaction, then even if it's not finished, I'm ready to let it go. Some people think a poem is never finished.
0: What are some of the things on your checklist? I'm curious.
1: Are all the world's words spelled correctly? Does it have a heartbeat, an emotional temperature? Is it in a particular form? Is that form correct? And on and on and on.
0: (laughs) What is like your favorite poem that you've written?
1: Uh, I haven't written it yet. You know, I feel like that once I've written my favorite poem, there'll be zero motivation to keep writing. I'm always chasing the favorite or the best thing I've ever written. Believing I haven't written it yet keeps me motivated to get up every morning and try it again.
0: That's awesome. In 2013, how did you feel when you were named the first African-American Poet Laureate in Kentucky?
1: It was quite an honor for me um, for all kinds of reasons, and least of which that it was a big deal in my hometown of Danville. I think my hometown sent three school buses of people, students and community members, to the installation uh, in Frankfurt at the Rotunda, and that was amazing to to say on the microphone. I heard there were people from Danville here, and then the whole place is filled up with this roar. Those are my people. It was it was it was moving. But it you know I think my first response was understanding how much of an honor it was because I'd been to maybe five other laureate installations and. Several of them were my former teachers, particularly Gurney Norman and James Baker Hall. Having a chance to follow in their shoes, you know, was an awesome responsibility. You know, I didn't take it lightly. I understood the weight of such an opportunity. But I felt like I was also ready for it.
0: What other poets inspire you?
1: My students, you know, it depends what I'm reading at the moment. Uh, I'm particularly enjoying Ross Gay's book-length poem about Dr. J as a recovering athlete. You know, anything that touches on the other parts of my life that don't deal with, with literature but deal with the things I'm, I'm passionate about sports is one of them and it's nice to be able to enjoy you know sports and literature and poetry at the same time so I'm currently devouring that collection one collection that I near me like a Bible is uh, Lucille Clifton's uh collected poems you know, she has you know my wife likes to say she has a poem for every occasion and I think that's true uh, but I've been studying her work really closely because I'm thinking about maybe developing a whole co- new collection of poems based on her poem my poems will respond to something she wrote and I've done about a dozen of those already and I really I think it it'd be a worthy collection
0: Lucille Clifton is one of my favorite poets so homage to my hips I love yeah, that poem true. so much
1: Yes, it's a great poem, yes. Mm-hmm. It's one of the poems that I, I responded to. I have a, my own version. She, in fact, she was, um, she was my, one of her poems was my inspiration for the book I wrote about Megger Efforts because she had a poem that talked about seeing the killer as an old man sitting in the, in the courtroom and realizing that he was an old man and that Megger never got a chance to be an old man. There was something about it that just followed me for a week. I just couldn't mm-hmm. shake that poem and I ended up writing a whole collection based on Meg Evers because of that poem and the fact I couldn't shake it.
0: Medgar Wiley Evers was an African-American civil rights activist in Mississippi, and he was the state's field secretary for the NAACP. He also served in World War II. He was assassinated in 1963 by Byron de LeBeckwith, a member of the White Citizens Council in Jackson, Mississippi. What other forms of art do you enjoy? I'm a visual artist and a
1: photographer and a playwright. I don't know that I enjoy any of them. It's, it's work in most cases because I'm trying to, to say something. And most of the time, it's not something that is just about being happy and glad. It's about something that's troubling, something I can't explain or that worries me. My last book was called uh, mass Man Black, uh, Protest uh, and Pandemic Poems. And so there's nothing happy about the pandemic. And protests, you know, that, you know, how do you talk about a protest and the cause of it and have it be a, a happy, light conversation? You just can't.
0: And the last three years, how would you say poets have reacted to the political and social climate?
1: Well, I can't speak for all poets, but I'd like to think that poets are naturally uh, suspicious of politicians and government. So I'll say the last three years, probably been a lot more anti-authoritarian poetry written and more poetry inspired because of social unrest and more poems that just are committed to kind of interrogating social justice issues and I would say that's a reflection of what the United States has been like the last three years. I know I wrote a lot of poems in those categories.
0: (laughs) Is it a poet's job to be political?
1: I don't think it's our job but I think every poem is political whether you intend it to be or not. You know if you think you didn't take a stance at all. That's a stance. But I I think it's not our job. I think it's our responsibility to not shy away from politics. I think it's our responsibility to tell the truth, even when it's ugly, even if it criticizes our leaders and institutions, that that's our job to tell the truth. And it's also our responsibility.
0: Does poetry actually inspire change and like reform in some types of ways?
1: I hate to think, I've been doing all this for nothing. I'm going to say yes, it does. Definitively, absolutely yes. It inspires change in people, which is more important than institution. I don't know that a single poem can change an institution. I think poetry can inspire people, and those people can change institutions. Uh, I think about the last presidential installation, inauguration, how excited people were, necessarily because of the words of a poet who was present at that ceremony, but... The power of her presentation, and I, you know, I felt a similar kind of pride as a, as a poet. You know, I was struck by people's continuous celebration of, of of her reading, but then it hurt a little bit when I said, "Well, what she, what was it about?" And they couldn't answer. They tried to quote an individual line, but they couldn't tell you what the poem was about. But they liked the way she read it. You know, they liked the performance of it, and to me that kind of took away from what she had to say. If, if all you remember is how she said it, you know, it's a good thing that, you know, at least you can leave with how, remember how she made you feel. But if you don't remember anything she said, then she, She didn't waste a lot of words, but, you know, we don't listen as carefully as we should.
0: If you don't know who Frank X. Walker is talking about, he's talking about Amanda Gorman, the woman who performed the Hill We Climb at the inauguration of Joe Biden. She is the youngest inaugural poet in U.S. history and the first ever National Youth Poet Laureate, which she got the title of in 2017. It's interesting you say that people don't really remember, like, a whole poem. They'll take away the title or, like, a phrase from it. Because I know one of my favorite poems by Olivia Gatwood, Alternate Universe in which I'm unfazed by the men who do not love me. I only remember one line, and that is, I have so much beautiful time. But like the poem is like two pages, but like that's the line that like stuck with me. So it's interesting that you said that.
1: It's a reflection of of how our minds work, I think, you know? And I think we only remember songs because of repetition. I mean, if you have a favorite song, you've probably heard it a thousand times by now, but... We have favorite poems. We may have only heard them a dozen times out loud or read them no more than a dozen times for ourselves. I know when I'm given a reading, the first poem I read and the last poem I read are very important because I'm thinking they won't remember anything in the middle. You know, so I want to remember how it started Mm -hmm. and then what's the last thing I said and hope that, you know, follows them home.
0: What advice would you give to any, like, new upcoming poets who are just beginning?
1: Read, read everything and whole collections of poetry. The most important thing to be a poet is to read other poetry, to know what poetry is, to not think you're inventing something from scratch because it's been done before. It's rare that, you know, something brand new happens on the page that hasn't been tried or attempted, uh, even if it fails. The most important lesson always for me is read, 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 read. read. Whole books.
0: Who are the Afrolachian poets?
1: Oh, the Afrolachian poets... Uh, that's my family is a short answer, but a group of poets of color who represent a part of the United States that, by definition, 30 years ago, uh, suggested people of color didn't exist there. When we used, started using the word Appalachian, it was because in a dictionary, Appalachian said, white residents of the mountainous regions of Appalachia. You know, I invented the word, but I immediately thought, well, what do you call the people who are not white who live in the same space? That makes no sense. Uh, But it was in the dictionary. But it led me to use that word for the first time, affolation. And so, you know, to me, the affolation poets represent a group of people who are are trying to not just uphold social justice uh, and write about their family and identity and place, you know, but to do things in an inclusive way, to build community, and to make people who felt like their voices are heard if they had been previously muted, they were, if they felt invisible, that they can now be seen.
0: When did this group, like, get started?
1: 1991 on the University of Kentucky campus in the conference room of the Martin Luther King Cultural Center. Although the name has changed over the years and I think it's in its third location and its third student center.
0: Who is in this group and is membership exclusive? It's by invitation only.
1: There are almost 40 members. Some of those members include uh, Nikki Finney, Kelly Norman-Ellis, Crystal Wilkinson, Ricardo Nazario Colon, Mitchell L.H. Douglas, Jeremy Payton.
0: How do you like get a letter? Like, How do you get an invitation to this group?
1: We usually take new members every five years. So there haven't been that many new groups of people. Most of us are what we call practicing artists so that we do not just, we haven't retired from writing, but not only writing, but our lives are either about teaching writing or we're in a literary space. And then, you know, we watch people over the years and we build a kind of a silent list of people we want other members to watch and look at. And when the, when the window opens, you know, we have a meeting and say, well, who's, who's on the list? Who have been looking at? Who's, who's been showing that they deserve or have earned some membership? And then we contact those people and ask them to send us work samples and a letter of interest. And then we vote. And you have to get 100% vote. Nobody can vote against you. You, know, you just can't let strangers in your house, you know?
0: This is a bit off topic from poetry, but one of my professors, Khaki Urch, told me that you're interested in comics. Could you talk to me a little bit about that?
1: I love Khaki, by the way. What if she said, it was understated. <laughs> um, I, uh, If I look behind me, I have a whole section of bookshelves that are devoted to comics. As far as I know, and nobody has challenged me on this yet, I have the largest collection of African-American action figures in the United States. Uh, so many that I had to keep them in, in a separate storage unit in a controlled temperature environment. They've been on display only at, well, three universities and the Lyric Theater about five years ago at the Lyric. I'm a visual artist and a writer. And When I was a kid, I drew my own comic books. I wish I still had some of those but my mother threw that collection away. Uh, my first library was a milk crate full of comic books. At UK at least twice in the last seven, maybe seven years. I teach a, a comics and graphic novel course but it's my favorite thing to do uh, when I'm teaching. Other than creative writing, of course. And it's, it's almost double. I feel like it's doubled in the last five or 10 years. They're even more, it's more diverse than it was when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I'd make two or three uh, African-American figures, that was it. You know, Now there are at least a couple of hundred. My international collection is probably the smallest part that I love to work on and build, but it's quite a joy to be able to go to a place like uh, Paris, France and Find out they've got a comic book store, like two bucks. And I'm like little kids. (laughs) Go to the Louvre or the comic book store. (laughs) Don't make me choose. I ended up buying, I think, a t-shirt and a single book. But I was so, it hurt to leave in a way that, you know, visiting the Louvre and leaving didn't feel.
0: (laughs) Are you more of a Marvel or DC fan? And who was your favorite like superhero growing up? Oh, that's easy.
1: Marvel, hands down, and partially because Marvel, I think Marvel was was not afraid to 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 be diverse early on. I mean, the things they've done in the in the in the face of diversity has been kind of trendsetting. You know, I have, there's a whole lecture about that that I've given. And growing up, you know, once I graduated from you know Richie Rich and Donald Duck, those kind of comic books, and got into the action comics. I think before I discovered Black Panther and Luke Cage, even though Luke Cage initially was, was like a black exploitation film. I mean the language was, was so horrible and it a reflection of the industry. You know, we had people who didn't know black communities trying to mimic one, create one, and it was it was buffoonery and almost embarrassing when I look back at it. But the characters looked like me and my family, so that was a bonus. I had never seen that before, so I was very excited about it. And I think for the Black Panther, the fact that he was a superhero, but he didn't have superpowers. You know, he had his intellect, you know, he had his fighting skill, he had his will. And of course, he had Vibranium. He seemed more accessible. I knew I could never be Superman because I'm from Earth. I couldn't be Batman because I didn't have a billion dollars. But maybe I could be Black Panther because he's like a regular guy who mm-hmm. was just smart and athletic, you know, I thought. I was at least one of those things.
0: What was it like having the Black Comic Book Heroes exhibit during like the same time as like Black Panther coming out?
1: It was a thrill. I got a chance to find out how many more people were were nerds like myself. (laughs) Uh, And it was, I mean, it was a joy to have those conversations, to be in those spaces and have it appreciated in a way that it only happened in my house, you know, with my son and uh, family members. But to see a, a whole community turn out, I don't think there's been an exhibit at the Lyric that's ever gotten the kind of attention that that did. Every day, busloads of kids would come. And I would get calls to meet kids, talk about the exhibit. So we're going to do it again. Uh, Black Panther 2 comes out.
0: Oh, that's awesome. How did you like the first movie?
1: Uh, I'm not embarrassed to say that I teared up several times.
0: I did too.
1: I mean, it was, you know, for, for, for multiple reasons. You know, I think once the lights went down, in fact, I took my class to a premiere. Oh, we got wow. to see the early here in Lexington.
0: That's so cool. So,
1: and we're sitting there. Well, before we even sat down, I gave us a, a speech, a short talk, and people didn't want to hear. They want get to the movie, get to the movie. So it was about five minutes, but it was stuff they needed to hear about Black Panther, the comic, before they see it as a movie. If they've never seen the comic, you know, I had to get them ready for what was coming. Uh, and then even it was more than I imagined. The scenes were so breathtaking uh, when they first came into Wakanda and flew through the, the fake tree image and then there's this city that was the second time I cheered up because I was <laughs> breathtaking because I recognized very specific African architecture you know that was that was a library from Timbuktu you know that you fly past the first time and I'm looking at stuff and I'm going that's 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 and it was almost overwhelming and then to see the degree, costuming and didn't expect it to be so well done. You know, as a fan of you know visual everything, visual aesthetics. I remember when I saw the Lion King in person and how impressed I was with the costumes and how they moved and and how powerful that made the whole telling of the story. The same thing happened during Black Panther when I saw how much attention they gave to every single thing. I mean the clothing, the music in the background, the walls, the even the storyline was was powerful enough um, that I was just I just kept going, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I think in the first the first three days I saw it five times.
0: Oh wow!
1: Yeah, I could I just I just had to go back because I kept thinking I missed something, I
0: missed something, mm-hmm. I missed something. But
1: yeah, it was yeah. Now when it comes on, when it comes on regular television, I can't watch it. You know.
0: Yeah, I haven't watched it since Chadwick Boseman died. I just haven't yeah. been able to.
1: That's that. That's that's been hard. But for me, I think, you know, seeing it larger than life on the big screen really was in such a powerful way to to minimize it now and see it in a little box. You know, actually, my TV is bigger than that, but <laughs> it would feel the same way. It's like. You, you can't. I feel like you can't see the whole screen. You're leaving out something. You know, it doesn't fit. Uh, all of that can't fit. You know, in 56 inches. Uh, but yeah, and I it just, it, it, if I turn the channel, if, if it, it just if it's not accidentally, there are some movies that no matter where it is in the telling, I can I can sit there and watch the rest of it all the way through. It's not one of them, right? And, I could go back to the movies and see it again in the big screen, in the IMAX even. You know, I, tried, I wanted to see it in as many versions as possible to see if there was any difference. It kept getting better every time. Although by the fifth time, I was no longer crying <laughs> when the credits were rolling. You know? I was like, okay, nothing, I'm good, I'm good. But the first time when the credits were rolling, I just sat there and my face was just wet. I think so many of my lives came together in that. the space of that time, you know, from 11 year old me to, to the professor me to my personal interest, me as a visual artist, me as a writer, seeing the writing was so well done. The pieces that were visually stunning, uh, were at the highest level and the music, you know, I've been listening to the soundtrack for a whole month before that anyway. So Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there listening for certain parts, uh, to come in. Uh, but I don't think I've been that moved by a piece of art since I was in high school, when I went to see the Broadway production of *The Wiz*, the original Broadway production.
0: Oh, that's uh, awesome! Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Well, I remember Center College was recruiting me, so they, I got tickets that were fifth row center, best seats in the house. And Stephanie Mills was was playing uh, Dorothy. Even now, the first song "Home" comes on, I, I, it still moves me to tears, and it just everything behind what that represents as a person who, who loves their family and you know, who was a mama's boy, all of that comes to the surface when I, when I hear that song, it takes you back to that moment when I'm watching the production. And for me, it kind of blew me away because I grew up in a really small town and I'd never seen a Broadway level theatrical production. There was also a musical. Uh, I had never seen professional costume design, professional Acting and singing in person, and lighting, and you know the dancers by themselves. I remember the when the uh, when the monkeys came out dancing. That part, you know, is supposed to be kind of a horror part of it, uh, and how powerful that was, uh, <laughs> and how much I was moved. But but co- collectively, I knew that this was this was something magical happening, and the, I think somewhere in my in my core, I decided that I needed to find a way to, to live in this space the rest of my life. This is where this art thing, this writing and and, and, and visual and power and theatrical, that I had to find a space to hang on to that. Um, there is, sorry, <laughs> <starting> Stephanie Mills. <laughs> and as an artist and, and writer, uh, and that's the kind of art I wanna make. I wanna make create art that moves people in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Opera House in downtown Lexington is bringing, I think, six different shows this year. Oh, wow. They have a really decent series. Mm-hmm. They don't have the widest stage. <laughs> uh, but they they bring some pretty good productions through. You should check it out.
0: I have one last question for you. If you had to choose one of your books to like leave the world as a representation of you, which one would you pick and why?
1: I would say I have not written it yet. I'm still trying to, to write that that book that is that iconic. Mm-hmm. Uh, My American Masterpiece, I haven't written it. Still learning, still trying to, to get better every day, so.
0: Thank you so much for talking with me.
1: Hey, well, thank you for those great questions. You know, you asked me at least seven things that nobody has ever asked me before. Really? Uh, so, so thank you for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so kudos to you. I really have fun in interviews, so thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to episode three of the KRNL Lifestyle Podcast. I had so much fun talking with Frank X. Walker. Stay tuned next week where me and Jordan are going to be talking about National Bourbon Month.